We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. NASA and SpaceX have launched a mission to the International Space Station. On board Japan, two Americans and one Russian. If we can get along up there, why can't we down here? Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah, there you go. Why not? What the heck's wrong with everybody? They're flying around there in something the size of an Uber. And uh, they're getting along. Why can't we, when we got this big old planet to, uh, to hover around? All right, we were talking about this yesterday and sort of, you know, found out the business angle of why this is happening. And this is the jump uh, the Canadians may see when they're buying stuff uh, using a credit card because businesses have secured the right to add a surcharge, uh, which they must disclose during a, uh, as part of their transactions, as part of a lawsuit against MasterCard and Visa and the bank. So basically, there's like a, a one to three percent, roughly, I guess, fee every time you use your, biz- your Visa card. Who pays? that is this argument and now it's you because uh, businesses have have earned the right to pass that on to you as long as it's disclosed does this mean anything what does it mean uh in the grand scheme of things for those uh who are making purchases let's bring in don fox executive financial consultant fox group uh ig private wealth management and of course you can hear us uh, every saturday morning at a uh, 8 a.m and of course uh this weekend with uh philip peterson uh Chief Financial Strategist of uh, IG, talking about uh, the quarter that was, we'll say. So uh, we'll talk about that coming up on uh, the weekend. But today, Don, a lot of people talking about this. Is this significant? Is this a big deal? Or is it, once again, we're getting nickel and dime to death? <laughs> well, it sounds like a big deal. You know, anytime you add, you know, a surcharge of any sort. And, you know, they're, they're looking at it just charging whatever the the credit card uh, company charges that retailer. They can't go higher than that, and it's capped at 2.4%. So at the mm-hmm. surface, you're thinking, okay, we're, we're trying to fight inflation on one hand, and then we're going to be you know, charged another couple percent on the other end. It seems to be counterintuitive if they'd even allow it. But uh, at the end of the day, it'd be interesting to see how much uptake there will be on this. Uh, you know, The uh, Senior Vice President of Public Affairs of Retail, his suggestion is that be it's more hypothetical than reality. Uh, they're looking at this saying, you know, very few people will, very few companies will charge this because, you know, there's a competitiveness. I, I have a feeling there's a profit margin baked into most prices anyway. That's that what include. I was going to say. Would that, would that not be the case anyway? Because this has been there forever. Right. Yeah. So they, they know the prices and they know the profit margins, whether on average so many people use credit card and so many people use debit or cash. So, yeah, I I think it sounds like a, one of those things that it sounds worse than it is because I don't know if there'll be a lot. And for that matter, in the UK and the US, they've had this for years. And I don't, I've never, actually, sorry, I take that back. There's only been one case where I was charged a credit card fee at a retailer. So at the end of the day, the merchants have always paid this. Now they have the ability to pass that on. But as you mentioned, that would be a cost to them that would just be passed on to you and the price of their goods anyway, would it not? Generally speaking, they have that as one of their expenses when they fill out their you know, profit yeah. loss statements. That's one of the expenses, the credit card fees. And so that is, again, when they work out their margins, 
that would be already involved. But it's kind of interesting. The one company that stepped up to the up to the plate right away was Telus, saying they're going to charge 1.5 percent fee if this came about. And you know, I don't know about you, Scott. I'm not a big fan of how much the whole mobile phone data yeah. plans are charging yeah. in the first place. Yeah, and, and we're already known in Canada as one of the if not the top, or right at the top, like top 10% of all 228 countries that use cell phones, that they, we're right up there. Um, and just a short two years ago, in uh, July of 2020, uh, the government said at the time that they would be reducing our plans by 25% over the next two years and be regularly checking, uh, tracking this and releasing the cost until th- that goal was achieved. Well, I haven't heard a thing since that. And so TELUS is now saying, yes, we're going to be charging this 1.5% on an already inflated price. Yeah, I could see they sort of have a target on their chest anyway. I don't know if they'd be wanting to uh, go after uh, this at this point. Um, (laughs) um, You know, at, at the end of the day, what is the best way to spend money? What is the cheapest, most efficient way? Is it cash is king? Always use cash. We had a business prof on that said, you know, uh, stores, it costs them to carry cash because they need security and people to count it and whatever. What is the cheapest way to do business? Probably debit for our, for our company. You know, there mm-hmm. is a slight charge using a debit card, not as high as a credit card. And, and there's no security involved because the no money money will go directly into the bank account. And you're absolutely right. Um, you know, during COVID, one thing everybody learned is some wouldn't even accept cash. First of all, nobody wanted yeah. to touch anything. Yeah. Um, and, and all of a sudden, tap became very popular and not even, you know, touching a credit card for that matter. So, you know, it's, it's, inter- it's interesting how prevalent tap became and cash has taken a back seat. In fact, some of the restaurants right downtown here in Hamilton they stopped taking cash altogether, and they yeah. were cash only not too long ago. So uh, uh, we've got just about 30 seconds left. Your thoughts on, and this is completely different, uh, the, the issue about restaurants and tipping, because, again, we've seen that people uh, are complaining that the, the rate of tipping has gone up, and they don't want to pay that, even though they really wanted to support their local hospitality. And now you've got something like this. So you've got your tipping going up, if you're going into a restaurant, for example, and then you're using a credit card. It's kind of like a double whammy. Yeah, especially if they charge a credit card fee on top of it. Like I said, I think into the most parts, this won't happen. They, they took a, a, a poll of all the different companies. About 19% said they would increase, would use, add the surcharge. 26% said they would, but only if their competitors and suppliers started charging them. So, or, or you know, the competitions or the competitors would start charging. So if their competition is not charging, they're going to look beside them and say, you know what, we really can't charge either. So, you know, we're in a very competitive workplace environment. Retail is already very competitive. To add this would add some more friction that I'm sure that the companies wouldn't want to see. Don Fox with us, Executive Financial Consultant, Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management. Make sure you're listening Saturday mornings at 8 for planning your financial future. Don, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. So we're going to talk about space here. So uh, Ron Foxcroft sends me a picture of astronauts on the International Space Station taken in June of 2007. Uh, Russians and Americans flying on the uh, shuttle back then uh, and the whistle that I guess made it up to space and this beautiful plaque with all the autographs. Uh, where hasn't this guy been? Or at least this whistle. Wait a sec. If I look there behind the astronauts and the cosmonaut, is that the queen? 
and Ron, I, it's hard to tell. Uh, there's another story he'll have to share with us uh, at a later date. In the meantime, uh, we talked about this yesterday, SpaceX and NASA together and uh, sending a manned mission uh, up into space. To talk more and give us an update, Dr. Jesse Rogerson with us, Assistant Professor of Science and Technology Studies in Natural Science with York University and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. So first of all, your thoughts on the launch yesterday. It seemed to go, uh, you, you know, tickety-boo. Uh, obviously, a while ago, an unmanned version of this going on, uh, going up. What are your thoughts on what we saw? Yeah, I think that watching that launch, and I've watched it a few times because um, they, they do it on YouTube, and you can go back and you can rewatch. And they it went, I love the, the phrasing, tickety-boo. It went exactly as you would expect it to go. Uh, so they this took off from Florida down in, in Cape Canaveral. And what they do is they have this capsule on top of the Crew Dragon capsule. It's got four people in it, four astronauts. And they, they're launching to an orbit. And what and the way they do this is they're, they go downrange, which is in the eastward direction. And then what's really complicated about their this, the way SpaceX does this is when they separate their stages they try to recover as many of those stages as possible, in particular, the first stage. So they have, once they like release a chunk of the rocket, instead of it just falling down into the ocean, into the Atlantic Ocean, it automatically on its own does its own auto launch or auto landing onto a floating barge out in the middle of the Atlantic. And that went perfectly well. And that's a really great video to watch too. So they got to orbit perfect. The, they recovered their first stage of their rocket perfect. And it's, it's, I guess my thoughts and feelings are like, we're starting to see this is the fifth Dragon, Crew Dragon from SpaceX in collaboration with NASA, going to sending astronauts to the ISS. We're starting to see a business as usual approach now where, yes, we know what we're, SpaceX knows what they're doing and they're, they want to be a part of this ongoing process, getting people to and from the International Space Station. They nailed it and I think they're going to keep nailing it. I remember uh, talking to Paul Delaney about the many, many years ago when they were bringing the rocket, as you mentioned, uh, instead of this going to the sea and, and what have you, landing back down on the platform and thinking, oh, my goodness, I cannot believe they're doing that. It's like something out of the twilight zone. But to, to go from there to where they are now in a manned mission in that short period of time, uh, it's incredible. Talk a little bit about the the synergy between SpaceX and NASA, because when when uh, we, you know when some of these companies, whether it's SpaceX or, or or Virgin or what have you, were sending people up to space, a lot of people were were being very critical of rich people flying in space. But you know, this is part of technology. This is moving the industry forward, is it not? Oh, very much so. Uh, the and you know it's funny just uh, just to quickly touch on what you're talking about I can't believe that they're landing a rocket like landing a rocket and not just yeah. having it drop in the ocean if you watch the early attempts they crashed and burned SpaceX many times trying to yeah. land that thing on that barge and the rocket just blew up fell over missed etc so you know they kept at it and they figured it out anyway um, there's a yeah there's a real in fact when you talk about SpaceX specifically you know Elon Musk he's a rich billionaire he's built this space company but what you're seeing, uh, the, the fruition of, of this company, is NASA's investment in that company. Because it wasn't just SpaceX saying, hey, we're going to build rockets and then we're going we're gonna to get off the ground. NASA and other international partners recognize that we, like we as government agencies, like NASA, the space, uh, Canadian Space Agency, the European Space Agency, and so on, we shouldn't be, nor can we, 
carry the load of all of the space exploration that has to occur in the next 100 to 200 years. What we need to do as government agencies is encourage the private sector to get into this. And part of that encouragement is is funding. And they've and NASA has directly funded SpaceX programs for quite a long time and is directly purchasing what SpaceX now has the these crew dragon capsules so that they not not purchasing the capsules but purchasing the the flight up paying SpaceX to fly their astronauts to the International Space Station and this is really really good because it means that NASA can just you know let SpaceX do that and put other funding to other things like say going to the moon or Mars they wouldn't have enough money to manage flying to the ISS manage flying to the moon manage building a space station at the moon you have to diversify and diversification especially in an industry like space is incredibly important the the amount of applications that space sciences has to us on the ground is innumerable i mean you could talk about the basics like communications and gps but like it goes de- it goes so deep it's like banking it's um, wildfires, it's science, it's technology, like the list goes on. And having as many players working in space as possible is going to be really, really helpful. So watching SpaceX work with NASA and work on its own is very, very encouraging. So representation on this flight from Japan, America, and Russia, considering the politics of the world today, (laughs) how has what's going on on the planet complicated that? Yeah, this is it's definitely a complicated situation in with Russia in Ukraine and no one no one in support of that certainly not the United States and then having and then you have a and and then if you look around like there's sports and like tennis matches that aren't yeah. um allowing Russian players to represent themselves right but then you have a Russian cosmonaut flying up to the international space station what if you look through history the United States and Russia have done a really good job at somehow collaborating and separating geopol- geopolitics from space exploration and remaining somehow on good terms in space. You go back to the Cold War, they were even able at the height of the Cold War to do some friendly missions in space and actually dock different spacecrafts between Russians or the Soviets and, uh, and the United States. Um, what I would say here is that it's absolutely vital to the health of the International Space Station that you, Americans and Russians are there on board. So it would be against American interests to bar Russians from flying on their spacecraft, right? You want to maintain your ISS, that means maintaining a relationship with Russia, even if it means other things Russia is doing are against what you think is the right thing to do. So there's no, there's personal interests. Um, I think that there's also the 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 want and desire of the science and engineering community to keep space as as politics free as possible, uh, because it does represent at the moment at least our best our best efforts in in maintaining um, a manageable Earth, like cli- like managing climate change, managing our natural resources. And this is an international thing. And even if there's stuff like really bad stuff going on the ground, we want to protect what we're doing in space as long as we can. So I think Russia and the United States recognize all of the 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 details here, recognize all the minutia, the relationship building and want to protect that as much as possible. So it's complicated, as you can see. 
Hey, if they can do it up there, why not on the ground? Uh, Dr. Jesse Rogerson with us, Assistant Professor of Science and Technology Studies in Natural Science, York University. SpaceX and NASA teaming up for the launch yesterday. A Russian, two Americans, and a Japanese astronaut on board. Uh, so there is hope, isn't there? Uh, thank you so much for the time, Doctor. Be well. Thanks for having me. See you later. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We remember during the height of the global pandemic when everything was shut down, including our hospitality industry, we tried everything we could to support them. And when it all ended and the doors opened up and we could run out and play in the daisies again, uh, it was like head, head back to the restaurants and, of course, try to help out as much as we can. And then we started to see prices go up. And then the tipping stuff and what have you. And it's like, well, wait a second, all of a sudden I can't afford to eat out like I did before. And it was the same thing with travel. Once especially you could get your passport and you could sort of move through the airport. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Well, now we see uh, that uh, hotel prices, for example, specifically in the Toronto area, but on any large city, are going through the roof. Uh, we talked earlier a few weeks ago, a few months ago, about how there may be some fall sales. Uh, does that still apply? Let's bring in Barry Choi. Uh, uh, Barry Choi is a travel expert, and he is with us now. Barry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Good afternoon. I think we were talking, or somebody was a few weeks ago or a few months ago, that we may see uh, some opportunity at this time of the year for winter travel. Are we seeing that? It was us talking about it, and I think there is still opportunities to find deals. It just depends on what you're looking for. But at the same time, I would say prices have gone up overall. So the deals that you're getting may actually put it back to pre-pandemic levels, which may surprise people, especially those who have not traveled in the last two or three years. So uh, this is the same old, same old with everything, right, Barry? Everything's gone up and the travel industry is no different here. You know, I think the best way to explain to people who aren't used to traveling right now, it's like travel is back. You know, we talked about throughout the summer how there was a lot of demand, which did increase prices. You know, one good example is I was in Vancouver three weeks ago and hotel nights were going for $600 plus a night, uh, mm. which is crazy. My, my return fare to Vancouver was less than that via air, airplane. And the reason for that is cruises were back, conferences were back, corporate parties. Uh, so it's supply and demand. And right now we're still seeing lots and lots of demand. Uh, still an issue with getting enough people to fill the jobs in the industry to get more planes in the air and more of this going on. Any idea when it will be back to those kind of operating levels? You know, if I were to see of Air Canada or WestJet or anyone, hmm. I would love to give you an answer. But I think right now, they're in a strange position because, you know, they're trying to fill staff as quickly as possible. Uh, but we're st seeing more and more demand. You know, just earlier this week, they dropped the Rive Can app. Uh, they dropped a mandatory mask. I think that would probably increase the, the demand for travel again. So, you know, there's always another reason to travel again. So, so I would argue that there was almost a missed opportunity earlier uh, when people weren't traveling. I uh, really, yeah, we should have done it back then. Um, uh, the dropping of all of the uh, mandatory COVID-19 regulations at the end of September. Uh, what does that mean? What has that meant for the industry in just a short period of time as a week? Uh, well, pretty much it's kind of like what we were saying already, where basically more people are traveling. So more demand, which means prices 
are going up, but I still think there's an opportunity to save, and we can talk about that. That's like a whole other conversation. I was just about to ask you that. So you've decided it's time you're going to go out, you're going to try to take the family on a vacation, but now you're constrained by a budget and it doesn't look like your buck's going to go as far. So how do you do this relatively inexpensively? What should you be looking for? You know, I think the number one thing for people who haven't traveled in a few years uh, is to use your loyalty points. You know, that your points are literally cash like they've got a real value to it so for example aeroplan uh, they recently announced this new program called hotel savers and basically members can save up to 30 percent in points at worldwide hotels uh, and this is significant because traditionally in the past hotel redemptions for points weren't necessarily the best value but now aeroplan is actually giving members uh increased value at no extra cost to some recognizable brands such as fairmont holiday inn Le Germain, Intercontinental. So like, it's an opportunity, in my opinion, for people to use up those points that they've had to actually get a significant discount on travel, whether that be for hotels or flights. Uh, what about the cruise industry? Are they still having issues and uh, offering discount? <laughs> you know what? When I was in Vancouver, I saw four different ships take off. So mm. I don't think they're having a problem filling up those uh, seats or cabins, what you want to call them. That said, I am still seeing a lot of discounts for cruises. So I do think there's an opportunity, uh, especially right now for North Americans, because a lot of the cruise ships are taken out out of Florida right now. It's just because of the season. So it's a popular time. It's much cheaper to fly down to, say, Florida to take a to start off a cruise. So there's definitely opportunities. You know, even on the radio today, I heard uh, one cruise ship was like, hey, if you buy uh, two passengers, they'll pay for the airfare for the second passenger. So there are some real enticing deals out there for cruise ship operators. What about Florida, Barry? You know, valid point with uh, Hurricane Ian and such. Uh, what does that mean for their season as we just about to head into the snowbird season? You know, obviously what's happened in Florida is a huge concern, especially towards uh, Fort Myers and, and Sanibel Island, which have pretty much been destroyed. Uh, but for as far as cruises are concerned, where they take off from, say Tampa, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, uh, I hate to say it, but they've almost recovered already. Sure, they got a lot of rain and there was debris. I was looking at video of Orlando. They pretty much cleaned up after two days. You wouldn't even know uh, the remnants of a hurricane went through. Uh, so that said, you know, we are coming up to a hurricane season, so you should be smart about where you're traveling to regardless. Barry Choi with us, travel expert, where we are now in a coming out of a pandemic and heading right back into travel. Barry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. No problem. Have a good one. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Got some breaking news here. Uh, happy, yay, but sad. Hamilton Bulldogs president and general manager Steve Sales and the Edmonton Oilers have announced that uh, the architect of two OHL championships will join the Edmonton Oilers as special advisor to hockey operations. Uh, under Steyos' leadership, the Bulldogs made the playoffs every season in winning the 2018 and 22 uh, OHL championships. Uh, Hamilton Bulldog owner Michael Andlauer announced today the promotion of assistant general manager Matt Turek to the interim general manager role, effective immediately. To talk more about all of this, lots going on. Reed Duffy with us, play-by-play announcer. Your Hamilton Bulldogs and here now. Reed, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. 
Scott, always great to be with you. And uh, you're right, it does kind of feel like a Friday, but it better not be because I'm in my office. If it's Friday, I need to be in Owen Sound right now. <laughs> you better pack up quick. All right, so I'm guessing mixed feelings with this. It's exciting to see someone go on and, and, and improve and, and, and get the big gig, as they say. But uh, how did the team take all this? How is this all announced to the team? You know, I, I think um, I, I think this was done the right way in every sense. Steve made it a point to talk to the coaches, the leadership group of the team, the team as a total, the front office, and and explain everything that was going on. And yeah, it, it is one of those days where you're very excited for Steve Steos and what he's done. And let's not kid ourselves. You win two OHL championships in the, the span of four years. There's going to be National Hockey League teams come calling. And when it's the Edmonton Oilers and Steve's history with that franchise, there's no question that, that you have to, to make that move. And I think the team has taken it well. Everybody is very excited for him. Uh, Matt Turek is stepping in as the, the general manager, and he has been here since day one as both a scout and director of player personnel. So the, the vision that has been put in place here continues on. Matt Turk is just a continuation of what we have seen over time with the Hamilton Bulldogs. So, yeah, I think it, it, it's bittersweet in a lot of ways to, to have Steve move to the next level, but I, I don't think it changes the game plan in, in any way for the Hamilton Bulldogs. And again, nothing more permanent in hockey than change, that's for sure. Uh, so uh, what now for the team? How long does this stay in place? Is in term? Is it a long process? Is it something they're going to take their time? Any thoughts as to what they're doing with the team moving forward? Uh, well, I mean, that, that's that's a good question. I think uh, news will kind of come uh, as it will, but I think Matt Turek is the, the right guy at the right time. And, uh, you know, I, I would think that that interim tag won't last all that long. Matt, Matt Turek is, is a, a, a bulldog from the very start. He's a Hamiltonian. He's a, a pillar in the local hockey community. He's one of the best draft guys there is, one of the best recruiters there is. Uh, Matt Turek is the right guy at the right time to step into the general manager's chair. So, Scott, I've got no trepidation in, in saying that I believe that Matt Turek is going to be uh, around the Bulldogs for a while to come. That being said, our, and I know you probably can't say, but does it look like he will have this gig for a while? Um, it very well could be. I think at this point um, it, it would seem that, that he has the inside track on it. Uh, obviously, when there's the interim tag, you can't say anything for certain. Yeah. But uh, I believe uh, personally that Matt Turk uh, is, is the right guy. And I think as long as everything is the way that uh, he likes it and the way that uh, our owner Michael Andlauer likes it, then things will continue on and we'll have that same vision moving forward. And again, with the reputation the Bulldogs have, uh, either way, this is a primo gig. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when Michael Andlauer is the owner of the team and empowering you to do your job as a general manager to make the moves necessary to go out and win a championship in 18, a championship in 22, to have the staff, the coaches, the front office, the scouts that you have. This is a big-time role. It takes somebody who's very strong, very smart, very uh, steeped in hockey to be able to make it all work. Matt Turk is that guy. So I, I think that uh, it's a primo job, and I think he's going to do a primo job of it. All right, really quickly, you're in Owen Sound tomorrow. Owen Sound tomorrow night, first time the Bulldogs have been there in almost three seasons. Uh, I think it's going to be exciting, Scott. And then we return back for the home opener Saturday night. 5,000 championship replica rings 
four banners going up. Everybody's going to want to be at First Ontario Centre. It's a party to celebrate, and I believe Steve Stales is going to be there. So we are going to celebrate everything that this franchise has accomplished. It's going to be a great time. All the reason to party. Reed Duffy with us, play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. Reed, as always, thanks so much for the time. Good luck this year. Thanks again, Scott. Let me just say thank you to Steve Stales for everything he's allowed me to do with my hometown Bulldogs. Uh, I've loved working with him. All right. Uh, obviously, the end of September, uh, all the mandatory uh, travel mandates for uh, COVID-19 vaccination and such and travel uh, were dropped. And that included uh, the Arrive Can app, which is, I guess, now optional for those that want to. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how that's working out. But the Globe and Mail headline says spending on the Arrive Can app projected to top $54 million. That's double the amount Ottawa first divulged. The uh, total federal spending on the Arrive Can app uh, on pace to reach that. More than double what they said it would. And Ottawa's approach to related outsourcing of who actually did this work is raising uh, concerns around transparency and people having your information. To talk more about this, Franco Terrazano is with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thanks for having me on. This was a pretty contentious issue, Franco, right up into the time it was dropped just uh, last September. And if you're thinking, if there's this many questions about it, uh, my first is, why would you keep it so long? Yeah, no kidding. But hey, Scott, wouldn't it be great one day to wake up, uh, check Twitter, check Facebook, check the news, and see a headline that says, federal government program comes in under budget, efficiencies Hmm. found. Wouldn't that be so nice just one day out of the year just to see a headline like that? You know what, Scott, let me take that back. We would probably need at least two days out of the year because the one day out of the year that we would see a headline where government found some savings would probably be April Fool's Day. But, you know, this kind of just comes back to to the big problem here. We see the headline, uh, Arrive Can App is projected to cost us taxpayers $54 $54 million, but this is double the amount that was first divulged uh, to the media and to taxpayers. So I think there's a real accountability concern here. Um, and there's also concerns around transparency and the fact that there's only a few people working for one of the biggest expenditures in this company, but they're farming out a lot of the work. So many are concerned about privacy issues. Uh, how much totally. does that play into all of this? Oh, big time. I think there is a big time uh, transparency issue uh, when it comes to the corporate contracts here. Look, I'm not one of these uh, type of business gurus. I don't know if it makes sense for this company uh, to be subcontracting or not. I really don't know. But here's what I do know. I do know that taxpayers are paying a ton of money here. Remember, uh, more than double what the original costs that were released to the public were. So we should at least be able to see uh, who were the subcontractors. So how it works out is that the company that looks like that got the most amount of money was really subcontracting out a lot of its work to some other companies. That's what it looks like from this story. But we don't know who the other subcontractors were. Now, that's really troubling, especially when you think about the nature of Arrive Can, right? This is people's personal data. Um, and to many people, this is a very personal data, right? Our health data. So we should, at the very least, be able to know all of the companies that were working on this app. So in the end, Franco, uh, did this work? Did it serve its purpose? Did we get value for our buck? Well, I don't know. And the government hasn't made the case. Uh, I do know that it costs more or it costs double more than what we originally told, uh, but it's on the government to make the case that this worked. And as of now, I haven't seen the government make that case.
I'm going to play devil's advocate here. What about, you know, we're in a pandemic. We need something. We need sure. it fast. We need it now. We don't have time to cross the T's and dot the I's. we got to get her done. Is that an excuse? <laughs> it might have been an excuse month one, but that's April 2020, <laughs> right? Uh, we're mm. October 2022. More than two years later, we know in total the federal government spent uh, half a trillion dollars plus on the pandemic. Uh, Arrive can, of course, we're seeing $54 million now, uh, double the amount Ottawa first told the public about. Uh, so look, uh, I totally appreciate that devil's advocate, and that may have been the case a few months into the pandemic, not two years and a few months into the pandemic. So is this more reason to have dropped it earlier? Well, that's a good question. And look, I think I'll leave that answer to, 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 the, to the professionals, the doctors mm. and things of that nature, right? I'm the taxpayer guy. I'm the person who's saying, well, hold on a second. Why does every government program, why does the price tag always seem to go up? And really when it comes to this, not only is the price tag going up, but we're really seeing a lack of transparency on the corporate contract side, especially when we're talking about personal health information. Very concerning. But also the accountability. I have yet to hear the government make a legitimate case as to what were the benefits that outweighed the cost. And also, too, I mean, let's not forget that people who were traveling, uh, at least Canadians who are traveling into Canada, I think we should be raising questions as to whether there was merit in this app in the first place. You know, I honestly, I don't know, but I haven't heard the government make the case yet. Uh, it is now optional. Is it still costing us? Is this still worth it? I mean, is anybody using it now that you don't have to? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I do have a trip in a few weeks planned uh, out of Canada, and, and I don't plan on using it. But the government bureaucrats do say that it will keep costing us at least until the end of this fiscal year. Again, uh, lack of transparency. I think the real question or a follow-up story to this would be, well, why is it going to continue to cost us money if it isn't mandatory anymore? And how much will it be? That's a legitimate question, and the government hasn't provided that answer. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, talking about the $54 million spent so far on the Arrive Can app, uh, double what they said it would initially, and we're not even sure if it worked or not. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You've certainly heard what has been going on with Hockey Canada of late, and the sponsorships or sponsors have had enough. They wanted action. They believe they're dragging their feet. So Tim Horton, Scotiabank, Canadian Tire, tell us just some of the sponsors who are altering or canceling their sports sponsorships with Hockey Canada. What does this mean? Is uh, this the way you bring an organization to their knees? It starts with the money. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. She is here now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Well, this is a juicy topic, Scott, and it's on uh, everybody's lips. So if you are a fly on the boardroom wall at Hockey Canada right now in the boardroom, what are we hearing? <laughs> I was going to scream, but I won't. <laughs> um, you know, I think we're, we're hearing a lot of hands ringing, heads shaking, um, you know, these people and, and people with backs against their wall, against the wall. That's what I think we're hearing. You know, it's interesting because when I was reading these articles, they, uh, Hockey Canada did hire Navigator, which is one of your top crisis um, firms in the country. And they admitted to saying that we have to push back hard. So I think that was found through some notes.
notes or uh, I don't know, some leaked information. So, and it was interesting because I think it was uh, a strategy that says, okay, listen, you know, um, we're not going to be kowtowed by the mob and we are not going to do what everybody's yelling and screaming for us to do. We think we do know what is right here and we're not going to back down and we're not going to step, step down either. However, it just seems that that narrative is really at a step with what's going on here. And it's not a believable narrative, Scott. And if it was, I don't think we would have seen the loss of these big sponsors like Scotiabank and Tim Hortons. So I think that what they're doing in that boardroom is they're saying, well, plan A isn't working. What's plan B? So would plan B be coming up with an alternative staff? We have to set this up for the next generation. We're gone. Is that an option? You know, I think it has to be. Once you get the provincial organizations refusing to let Hockey Canada use their money or even give them uh, part of the registration fee to belong to Hockey Canada in the first place, you know, the reason a provincial organization belongs to a more national organization, a national body, is for more clout. And in this case, really, what are the provincial hockey organizations getting out of this? And once you start, say, you know, thinking about, well, Ontario and Quebec, the two provinces with the greatest amount of uh, teams uh, that belong to their respective provincial organizations. You're talking about, you know, almost like a million, $2 million, I think I read. So it's amazing that people are really digging in their heels over at Hockey Canada and saying, no, I know that we made all these mistakes and I know that we didn't necessarily provide full transparency, but Oh, Oh, we will. And, I think that it's getting to the point where I think we'll hear in the next 24 or 48 hours, I think we will hear that people will start stepping down in order to save the brand. And we're not just talking about a brand here, Scott. We're talking about the national sport. So there's much more at stake here that meets the eye. I find it, I find it funny, and we've talked about this many times, whether it's school boards or whatever, and that's people get into a mode that think, yeah, just keep moving forward. Just keep plowing forward with this narrative, uh, and it's going to work. Because once you start losing money, once the organization doesn't have enough to operate, it's really uh, at its knees. So there really is no alternative here with this many sponsors all raising red flags at once. I think it's a combination, Scott, of sponsors, and I think it's a combination of stakeholders. So your stakeholders are your um, uh, provincial hockey associations, and the sponsors are obviously, you know, Tim Hortons and Scotiabank and Canadian Tire. And think about it. They're about to have a World Juniors Championship in Halifax, and with no sponsors, how is that all going to work? It's going to be, and a lot of people who go to those, um, not, not, I mean, I've been to World Junior Hockey, Junior Hockey Championships, and it's fantastic but a lot of sponsors go there too and they entertain clients or whatever so it's going to be a much much different atmosphere plus finances are one thing the court of public opinion is yet another and we all love watching all of this especially when it's a a big tournament around between christmas and new year's and such Uh, but that being said this is even affecting registration at the ground level so you know maybe you don't want to be pushed around by tim hortons or canadian tire but do they not understand, I guess this was my first point, uh, that these people are speaking for their customers and their customers agree with the same thing that the corporate sponsors do? Well, they're also thinking, gee, should I put my kid into hockey? Yeah. If I don't think my kid's going to feel safe at any level, 
then why should I do that? Because as you and I both know, and most people who have kids in hockey know, it's a darn expensive sport. And it is not accessible to everybody, even though there are great programs like Jumpstart at Canadian Tire that do help subsidize these things. But by and large, it's a monetary commitment and it's a time commitment for both kids who play hockey and their parents who take them hither and yon. So if you don't think that your kid is going to feel safe in the sport to begin with, then once you start going from grassroots to provincial to national, then that's just everybody. That's the trifecta. And it's all coming down on you. So at this point, I think that there really needs to be some give from Hockey Canada. Uh, do you think reason one of the one of the reasons there isn't is because this a lot of this only applies, I believe, to men's hockey. Women's Paralympic and youth hockey aren't affected. I believe only Canadian Tire is the only sponsor to pull out completely. Uh, should they be pulling it all out if they really want change? Is this just PR on the sponsor's fault? On the sponsor's part, we just don't want to be associated, but we'll slide it in through the back door for the kids in Paralympics and, and women's hockey. Well, I don't think that you should paint everybody with the same brush, Scott. And I don't think that the Paralympic Association, Hockey Association, um, should have to suffer because of the ills of uh, Hockey Canada. I don't think that the Mm -hmm. Women's Association needs to suffer at the ills. And we certainly haven't had any of these reports or damning reports coming out from women's hockey. So I think that it's fair to say for a sponsor to say, okay, we're still going to support this part of hockey. It's this part that needs to be cleaned up. Uh, politicians serve a role here. The Prime Minister has spoken out. He wants to change the name. He's already got a logo uh, for Canada Hockey instead of Hockey Canada. Uh, personally, I think he should be fixing health care and making his energy self-sufficient, but that's another story. Is there any politics here? I think there's a lot of politics, and it seems that this is a very safe topic for lots of people to jump on, not just the minister of sport, but from, you know, um, people involved in government in all in, in all shapes and forms. I know that um, the MP from Montreal, uh, Anthony Housefather, he's a former lawyer, and uh, he was actually uh, jumping in on it. So it seems to be sort of a very convenient narrative that is safe to, you know, poke the bear at, that you can, as a politician, get a little bit of airtime on. And because it really does align with public opinion, there's really no downside at this point because the, you know, the damaging evidence is, is, is in such, is so great. So it seems that the story keeps, um, this is a story that keeps on giving because a hockey Canada does not want to give in. And I'm not sure about, you know, the total advice that Navigator has given them because we don't know. And we always know, and we've talked about this before, Scott, is that even though a consultant can give, a a consultant that is well entrenched in this area of crisis communications can give all the advice they want, but the client doesn't always take it. So Mm. when you talk about what's going in that boardroom, I think there's a lot of talk. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. The situation, Hockey Canada finds it in, sponsorships leaving for their lack of action. Uh, More on this, I'm sure, coming up. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've talked about the credit card surcharges that will be added on uh, this after a recent uh, court decision, uh, now allowing merchants to pass on what the credit card fee is, which is somewhere between zero and, um, I don't know, I think two and a half percent or so. Uh, Now they can add 
added on to the price of goods, but it has to be uh, pointed out. Will that change things? What will it change? What does it mean for you and I going into a store? Let's bring in Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well. Good to be with you. So what is uh, the Canadian Federation of Independent uh, Businesses' view on this? What are your members telling you about this decision? Well, we we do see it as good news. Uh, we don't think it's a panacea, and it's not going to immediately lower these high credit card processing fees that businesses pay. Uh, but it does give businesses who are, that are facing these, uh, these expensive charges uh, some options. Right now, Canadians uh, may not be aware, but they pay for the cost uh, 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 through the merchant, through the prices that they pay every single time their credit card is used. So you might think those reward points you've been collecting are free, uh, mm. but I'm sure you know that somebody's picking up the tab. It's not coming from the annual fee that you might pay to get the card. It's not coming from the interest that you might pay when you carry a balance. It's actually coming through a surcharge, that uh, a charge that the merchant pays Every time the card is used, that ranges typically from one and a half to two and a half percent of the sale. Those fees have been we've been paying them forever, and they they total about five to seven billion dollars, billion with a B per year, um, and making Canada Canadians pay among the highest rates in the world. Now merchants are going to be able to not just embed them in the cost, but they'll be able to separate it out on your bill. Uh, they're not going to be able to charge you more than they themselves pay. Uh, but a new system uh, went into effect as of today, and some merchants are showing that they're interested in doing it. Um, uh, obviously, uh, this would have already been embedded into the cost of a product as the cost that the business, uh, you know, obviously um, encounters with running this and, and using credit cards. So um, at the end of the day, the businesses are already recouping this money, are they not, in their having it baked into the price? What's the what's the advantage of separating this? Yeah, so so in many cases, yes. Over time, these these costs do get embedded in the prices that we're pay, paying. Right now, though, many businesses are deeply underwater. They're they're afraid to increase their prices too much mm. because they know consumers are dealing with their own inflationary pressure, um, and and so merchants right now are in most cases losing money every day that they are open. Uh, only half of our members report that they're back to normal pre-pandemic sales. They're dealing with a mountain of debt and cost increases on almost every line of their budget. Uh, so yes, over time, it's true. Any cost that the business face gets uh, gets built into the cost that they charge their consumers. Uh, what what this does, though, is it it allows a merchant potentially. And and look, our data shows that about twenty percent of merchants are looking to use this power meaning 80% at the moment or not. Um, and in the retail space, even fewer. It, it may, we, we believe this will be used perhaps in your dentist's office, uh, when you book an airline ticket, maybe if you choose to pay your $1,000 insurance bill with your credit card, that's where you might get this surcharge, at least in the short term. But what it allows you to do as a merchant is to encourage your consumer to consider paying with another lower cost form of payment. Interact debit, you know, if you buy something for $100, the merchant might pay $1.50 or $2.50 to make that transaction happen. If they use our program, CFIB's program with Interact, uh, they pay $0.03 cents for the transaction. So pulling out mm. your debit card saves the merchant a ton of money. 
Why would people just not do that? I guess obviously because you can run up the bill on a, on a credit card. Um, what about uh, Visa and MasterCard, the credit card companies, the big banks that are behind all of this? Has there been pressure on them to lower these fees at all, or is that uh, there is has that been set yes. in stone? Uh, <laughs> look, we have been putting pressure uh, for rate reductions, and to be fair, there have been a couple of minor rate reductions in twenty. 10 and uh and also in 2015 sorry in in i think 2007 2008 then also again in 2015 but these fees are super high in canada sometimes four or five times higher than the rate that is charged in europe four or five times higher uh so we are we as, as canadians are are taking it on the chin on these fees and we'd love to see further progress the federal government, in fact, the, the the Liberal Party promised to lower to work with the industry to lower credit card fees back when they were elected in 2019. That didn't happen. They promised it again in the 2021 budget. That didn't happen. They promised it again in the 2022 budget, and no progress has been made yet. So we're still putting the heat on Ottawa to try to address the the core problem, which is that these fees are sky high. What do you think the fallout will be from this, Dan? Um, a few months from now, will we will, will we even be talking about this? Do you think? Look, I think I think the fee structure. Um, uh, I don't think a ton of merchants are going to do this in the short term, and there are rules that they have to follow. If you, as a merchant, are considering doing this, you have to post mm-hmm. uh, the the fee. You have to get approval from Mastercard and from your card processor. You have to put it on the the customer's receipt. Uh, so, and a lot of merchants are going to be afraid to do this because they're afraid to lose the customer to the guy down the street that not, that's not planning to levy a surcharge. I think in some limited cases, particularly in travel and a few other areas, you are likely to see it. And in business-to-business transactions, if somebody's using a credit card to pay an invoice for ten thousand dollars, then they might slap on a fee to, to to encourage you to pay through another means. Uh, but but look, Interac is always allowed surcharging. And you do see it from time to time when you go into a convenience store. You might see, you know, if your purchase is under $5, they'll charge you a quarter, um, but not very often. And I suspect that we're going to see this shakeout in the days ahead. The The underlying problem of these core, of these super high credit card processing fees, though, will remain. And that's where we need all of the players, government and industry, to step up and provide small businesses with a bit of relief. Dan Kelly with us, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, talking about credit card surcharges that you may now see when you make a purchase. Dan, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. Anytime at all. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Mayor for the City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, and he is with us now. Mayor Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Very well, Scott, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to you and your listeners out there. It purports to be a pretty nice weekend, so enjoy. And back at you for that. Uh, Now, just tell me, Mayor, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, no one's listening, and you're getting towards the end of your term here. What's it like when you hear that the uh, Premier and the Transportation Minister are coming to town? You all of a sudden start to sweat and think, my God, they're going to take my LRT away again. Does that ever cross your mind? No, no, never did. And, uh, you know, I give them full marks and credit for uh, finding a way to get uh, LRT back on track, pardon the pun. And uh, they did it with, uh, you know, a new funding model and a new funding partner in in terms of the federal government. So uh, it is still and will be a fully funded uh, federal provincial project. No capital dollars from the local municipality for LRT. And I had no worry at all 
that they were coming to announce uh, a cancellation of some sort. In fact, I was hopeful that they were going to uh, announce that uh, what they did announce today, which is uh, the, the construction of a new GO platform at uh, Confederation Station on off Centennial Parkway. A great new investment. Uh, it's been it's been on the books for a while, but the, you know the commitment hasn't been made, and they've now made the commitment. Uh, construction is already underway. And uh, it's going to be a great add-on service to not only for Hamilton, but a, a gateway to, uh, to you know, the future service to Niagara as well. I drove past this the other day, and I mean, it just, even if you know nothing about transit or city planning or anything, it just seems like a no-brainer with the geography and the location uh, that it's in. Where w- when will we eventually see trains? Because there's obviously lots of chatter. There always has been in the past. Yeah. When are we going to see a train? Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, we're talking about a three-year construction window here to uh, to have that done. There's uh, there's going to be an underground tunnel and uh, identified parking, uh, a platform obviously with a you know a kiosk for you know ticket purchase unmanned, but still uh, you know an opportunity for them to stop and uh, pick up passengers. So, 2025 is the uh, the target date to have it up and running and have the trains uh, going to it and through it. In fact, because. Not too uh, many years ago, we actually replaced the uh, Centennial Parkway Bridge. And if you drive that route, uh, you would have known that uh, there was a diversion there for quite a while while we replaced the the rail bridge. Mm-hmm. And that rail bridge was uh, replaced to allow for two additional uh, tracks that would uh, then operate from uh, from Toronto all the way through to Niagara. So all the preparations are in place for uh, for having this happen. And uh, all it needs now is that platform. It's about a $50 million investment, which is nothing, uh, nothing trivial. When you add it to all the other investments that, uh, that this, uh, this provincial government has made a commitment to, including LRT, including the traditional bus transit system, some $500 million of federal, provincial, and municipal funds, $3 billion for LRT, $50 million for this one, and all-day service at the harbor front. Uh, you know, from a public transportation perspective, we're doing exceptionally well. Uh, what about obstacles on this GO station moving forward? There's been some issues around tracks. Is there enough? What needs to be done there? No, and I think that's why they're able to start construction now, because the track issue has been sorted out. Uh, there is obviously a capacity issue. CN uh, owns the track, tracks uh, you know, all the way through, and so... You know, they, they, there's got to be a balance between freight, I and mean, there's a significant amount of freight that uh, that happens on those tracks. And and uh, the balance is, uh, you know, making sure that there's an allowance for passenger traffic. So, timing and signaling and additional track, all of that's been done. The uh, there was a, an issue at the uh, the juncture uh, near the high level bridge. Uh, you know, one one direction goes off to Windsor, and the other direction goes off to Niagara and to the United States. Uh, they needed to sort the, the track capacity issues out there, and that's been done. So all the uh, the groundwork's been done to allow for you know full day, all day service to the harbor front station, and ultimately uh, it'll be all day, uh, all week uh, uh, capacity at the uh, Confederation Station on Centennial Parkway. Obviously, Mayor, you're getting towards the end of your te- uh, term. You're feeling a little melancholy about all of this. I am, uh, to be honest. Uh, you know, I, 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 I've had such a wonderful opportunity to, uh, to serve our community at the highest level. I, I'm very proud of where Hamilton is. I have been uh, given the opportunity to work with some wonderful, wonderful people, not only in my office, but through the organization and the great things they've been able to do, uh, you know, over the last 12 years or so. 
So I'm uh, I'm going to miss all of that. And, uh, you know, it's not like I'm jumping for joy that I'm uh, not campaigning right now. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's sentimental. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of where I'm leaving Hamilton, but uh, I will desperately miss all the people I've been able to interact with uh, in, our, in our broader community, especially those that uh, are working here at the City of Hamilton. I, I'm so particularly proud of. There are some great people that have done great things, and uh, my role has been to empower them to do that uh, as mayor and council. And uh, I hope and, and expect that the next council will do the same. Did you ever uh, second guess any of this, Fred? You look at the candidates, you go, oh, I should be back in this. <laughs> well, I have to be honest. I, I hear things uh, coming out of the mouths of some candidates, whether it's, uh, you know, new candidates uh, that, you know, may not be fully in the know or, you know, have views that uh, may or may not be uh, doable. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I mean, I hear things, but you know what, uh, I, I, I need to stay out of the fray, and uh, this is now going to be someone else's, uh, you know, opportunity to make their contribution in the city of Hamilton. So I'll get over it, whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel a need to, uh, to react to all of that or to, you know, make, uh, make commentary on, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, candidates are doing or saying. Uh, I, I'm... Uh, potentially going to uh, endorse a candidate and that that yet will uh will potentially happen uh, as a candidate for mayor and I've, I've made some commentary on a few candidates that i think are worthy but beyond that uh, i'm staying out of the fray and uh wish everyone great success fred eisenberger mayor city of hamilton talking about confederation go station and coming to the end uh of his term well mayor fred i'm sure we're going to chat again i don't want this to be the last time and even when it does i'm sure that won't be the last time uh good luck to you and we'll chat soon be well thank you thank you scott you know i'm uh, i'm not leaving town i'm uh, i'm staying in <laughs> hamilton i'm a hamiltonian through and through and I'll find another way of contributing and uh, always open to having a conversation with you. I, I've always appreciated your uh, your approach. Thank you so much. The headline in the National Post, Canada's military chief warns China and Russia are at war with the West. Uh, chief of Defense Staff General Wayne Eyer told MPs that Russia and China consider themselves to be at war with the West and Canada must rise to meet this challenge. He was meeting with MPs at the uh, Common Standing Committee on National Security to talk about the threat russia poses to canada uh he said that russia and china don't differentiate between peace and war and are actively seeking to challenge the west uh they are not looking at regime survival but regime expansion they consider themselves to be at war with the west they strive to destroy the social cohesion of liberal democracies and the credibility of our own institutions to ensure to ensure our model of government is seen as a failure uh, there you have it. To talk more about all of this, Christian Leprec is with us. And, of course, he's a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada, as well as a fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute and Queen's University with us now. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, good afternoon, Scott, talking to you from Montreal today. Where, you know, you're always somewhere. It's amazing. You are a world traveler, that is for sure. Your thoughts, what General Wayne Iyer had to say in regard to uh, we should be paying more attention to what Russia is up to. 
Uh, well, look, it's been the greatest disruption of uh, the rules-based international order and, of course, of arguably peace time since the end of the Second World War. It's the first time uh, since the end of the Second World War that another country is looking af actively to redraw uh, boundaries in the region. Uh, clearly, this is a threat uh, that needs to be taken seriously. Uh, when you have uh, thugs essentially uh, threatening nuclear war over their egocentric, maglomaniac um, uh, conceptions of the world, um, and look, I mean, Putin isn't going to go away anytime soon, so we're going to have to live with this challenge for quite some time to come. Uh, and so I sympathize very much with the concerns that uh, General Air has expressed here. And I think he is also looking to signal and to convey to Canadians that the rather sleepy and homeopathic approach that we've had to international security and that these are all other people's problems, uh, that this is a rather imprudent way to prepare for what is going to be uh, a very difficult couple of decades ahead of us. Uh, obviously, we talk about what's happened in Ukraine and the Russian invasion, uh, but we still look at that as being very much on the other uh, side of the world. Uh, when he said the threat is broader than the war in Ukraine, but a, syst a systemic effort to change the way the world has been structured. Are we taking this seriously? Yeah, I think the... The interpretation by many people had been that China and Russia don't quite like the international order that we have, but in essence that that order has served their interests and so they have some interest in maintaining it. But of course, both Russia and China and their regimes are on record as saying that their intent is to overturn that order. And that means overturning the international institutions that also underpin that order. And that's a particular problem for traditional middle power countries such as Canada, because middle powers, traditional middle powers, have benefited disproportionately from that order. So it is also strategically in our interest to invest disproportionately in maintaining it. And yet, unfortunately, I think what we see is the exact opposite, that the maintenance of that order somehow in the perception of many Canadians and perhaps some of the folks also in Ottawa is sort of other people's problems and that we'll let them worry about it. Uh, and that strategy has never served Canada well in the past. We just need to learn our lesson from the 20th century. Obviously, uh, energy has now been weaponized here. Many are saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about renewables and we're not going to need this stuff anyway. Are we missing the point? How much does energy, uh, you know, play a role in what Russia and China are doing, uh, specifically when they're burning lots of coal, yet, from what I read this week, control like 75% of the solar panel market. So uh, they're playing as well as rejecting. Yeah, so I think there's a couple dimensions to this. One is that, you know, as much as we would like to uh, phase out fossil fuels, uh, there's a process we can phase out um, a good deal of oil. It's going to be much less likely we'll be able to phase out natural gas anytime soon, which is why this country should have a strategy in terms of how it can support its allies and partners, given uh, the exceptional natural gas reserves that Canada holds. Um, certainly from a Russian perspective, Putin has spent 20 years building 
an energy stranglehold on Europe, uh, including, of course, his interventions in Syria and in Libya that have been intent on avoiding pipelines that might be controlled by other people uh, reaching Europe. And from a Chinese perspective, look, decarbonization has been a strategy that plays into the Chinese hands in some ways, um, given that the Chinese very much control, as you point out, uh, a considerable part of the market uh, that is involved in decarbonization. And yet at the same time, while the Chinese regime itself is decarbonizing and is doing so at a rate uh, that is much lower than the West. So it means that we're incurring disproportionate costs. And so that is to say that, yes, uh, we're all in the fight against climate change together, but we also need to have a strategy that doesn't then inadvertently prop up the authoritarian regime in Beijing in the process. This is almost death by a thousand cuts. It's like a slow motion battle. It's very methodical. It, because it is happening so slowly, um, do we recognize it? Yeah, there's, I think, the sense that uh, there's this old saying, right, that uh, the West has the watch, but folks in China have the time. The Chinese mm -hmm. regime, I think, works on a very different um, uh, length of time. And generally, I think people, when, when they think in terms of empires, you get this in Iran, to some extent, you also get this, uh, get this in Russia, that time is on their side and that the West will sort of decline on its own. And I think what we need to demonstrate is that that is inherently the wrong calculation to take um, and that ultimately the West will continue to take the initiative and will ultimately fail. Um, but that means also having a strategy of where we actually want to go. And I'm not sure, for instance, that any government in the last 20 years or maybe even any politician currently serving in Ottawa at the provincial levels has a real strategy and a real vision for where we don't just want this country to be 10 or 20 years from now, but also where we want our allies and partners uh, as democratic countries and as the international rules-based order uh, 10 or 20 years from now, now that is coming under such active challenge and duress uh, from geostrategic rivals. And so, you know, we're, um, we need to be much more systematic about making sure that we're actually able to sustain uh, the democracy, the prosperity, and the security um, that has served us so well over recent decades. Uh, we've only got a couple of seconds left. Uh, you know what? We're going to save this for next time, and that is the retention issue uh, in the military. Obviously, staffing shortages there, like there are everywhere. Christian will hold that thought for next time. Christian Leprac with us, professor at both Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. As always, Christian, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've talked at length about our Canadian healthcare system and what uh, we should do. Uh, solutions, not so much. Does it need fixed? Yes. What to do? Then the discussion uh, expands a little bit. We've certainly talked about this during the uh, global pandemic. Now that the most of that is behind us and the rubber starting to hit the road, how are we moving forward? Uh, lots of chatter of uh, enhancing it with private options as soon as you say private. Uh, immediately red flags go off for people thinking they got to get out their credit card. Uh, here's another option that uh, is thrown out there, and that is expanding the use of surgical care uh, by having uh, a surgery model that helps shorten the wait times involving more surgeons, sort of a pool of. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Fadi Bala with us, Associate Professor of Surgery, University of Ottawa, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. How are you? Hope you can hear me okay. 
Yep, so far so good. Uh, obviously, doctor, many are um, trying to uh, come up with some sort of viable solutions to help our ailing healthcare system. What have you come up with? How can surgeons or the way we conduct surgery help this? Yes, uh, perfect. First of all, thanks for, for having me on your show. And uh, as you as you had highlighted, I mean, this is a a really complex problem. And I think the first thing we want to do is not oversimplified or overpromise a single solution. I mean, this, can, this is a complex problem we're in, and uh, it's probably going to require multiple simultaneous solutions. And who knows what the what will be the, the winning recipe. But I, what we're hoping to do is just basically amplify um, this ask around surgeons to consider more team-based care, or what we're calling shared care model, where a group of surgeons work, work together um, to look after patients. And so... Maybe I can tell you a little bit more about that, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. How is this better? So, you know, if you think about the traditional model of we work in right now, for most surgeons, you know, patient develops symptoms, patient goes to see their family doctor, family doctor says, yes, um, I'm worried about what's going on here, I'm going to refer you to a surgeon. And says, I'm going to refer you to Dr. Jones, I've worked with Dr. Jones for 20 years, he's really good, I'm going to go, I'm going to send you to see him. You end up then, or the patient ends up then, queuing to see Dr. Jones. Uh, Dr. Jones sees the patient says, yes, uh, I agree, something going on, you're serious, I need to send you for some more tests. And then the patient queues, goes and has a test and comes back to queue again to see Dr. Jones and follow up. Dr. Dr. Jones says, yes, we're going to go ahead with surgery. Now the patient queues for Dr. Jones' surgery time, et cetera, et cetera. If you think about it, when you go to Walmart or Lovelace these days, you don't have to hunt around to see which cashier has the shortest line, right? You wait in one line and the buzzer goes off and tells you go to go to cashier six or go to cashier seven and then you go you go there. And, that, and the reason for that are and by no means am I pretending that surgery is the same as going to Loblaws. But the reason for that is that system experts have discovered that queuing models like that are much better than multiple queues. And so what we're proposing here is in this model and that we have worked in for under in the last twenty years is instead of Dr. Jones working as a solo entity to look at three or four or five other surgeons that have similar profiles and convert all these cues that are individual surgeon cues to group of surgeons. So then the patient's queuing to see not just Dr. Jones, but three or four of her or his partners. And same for surgery. They're not waiting for Dr. Jones' surgery time. They're waiting for the surgery time for those four or five surgeons, et cetera, et cetera. I hope that makes this sense. Makes, this makes complete sense, doctor. My question is, why would the line be bigger for Dr. Dr. Jones, is that because he's more experienced? Is that because he has more references? Is that because he's necessarily better? So, um, you know, we're waiting for the good guy, per se. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's that's very, very true. And I think patients want to be absolutely confident that they're getting the best care. And, you know, I think we're uniquely positioned, despite all the challenges that we feel we see in our system right now, we're uniquely challenged, uh, privileged in our, in our in Canada that we have Excellent training, right? And and in general, despite all the problems, I, I truly believe that patients patients kind of have a lot of trust in their doctors and in their surgeons, right? Because we have hmm. world class education system, and so you know, compared to some other places where patients are questioning whether their surgeons is competent or well trained, I think that's a it's almost a almost a given in this country. Uh, you know, our, our previous uh, Governor General David Johnson wrote a book called trust and you know he highlighted how we're uniquely positioned in Canada to convert trust from an individual to a system and I, and I think I think we can do that as a group of or a system of four or five surgeons very easily 
This sounds great. It sounds efficient. It sounds good for the patient as well because it shortens the time uh, it takes to get to see a surgeon and the work done. Uh, logistically, is this as easy as it sounds or is it quite difficult with billing, what have you? Uh, yeah, multiple challenges. And I think, you know, the challenges before billing and the structure or whatnot, the, the real, I don't want to say challenge, but the real investment has to be in team function. It's about getting a group of four or five people and getting everybody on board from moving from this idea of them being as an individual solo entity to this group entity and all the things that go into making a highly functional team, right? Uh, and, you know, other industries, other high-stakes industries like aviation and nuclear power plants and other really high-stakes industries, they, they invest a lot of time in seeing how we can get people to work really well so they become a really highly functional, highly performing team. That, that's probably the most challenging part of all of this. Everybody's talking about healthcare, and we've certainly seen the faults as a result of a global pandemic and such. Are you convinced, doctor, that we'll find a solution here? Are you convinced that we'll move forward as opposed to getting stuck with Band-Aids and politics? Uh, yes, I hope so. I have to be. We have to be hopeful, and uh, and I and I think we, we, we will. We have, you know, we ha- at the base of it, we have, you know, a system that's got a really good ethical grounds behind it. We've got some really smart people working on on all kinds of solutions, and I don't think it's going to be a single solution. I think we have to sort of trial a bunch of different options and see what uh, which ones, which bundles end up uh, pushing us forward in the right direction. Dr. Patty Bala with us, Associate Professor of Surgery, University of Ottawa, talking about alternative uh, ways of caring for people, specifically around surgery, as we try to improve our Canadian health care system. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. You have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Ben and Will for producing, Diane and Dave in the newsroom. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Thanksgiving weekend is coming. I started early. Belt buckled. It's been loosened. Bring on the turkey! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.